For your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series in all other categories, the HBO Max original series Made for Love starring Kristen Milioti is a dark, tragic comedy centered around Hazel Green, the trophy wife and human guinea pig of tech billionaire Byron Gogol. After 10 years trapped in a suffocating marriage, Hazel makes the first real choice of her life. She runs. All episodes now streaming on HBO Max. Five-time Oscar-nominated producer Frank Marshall has been behind some of the biggest blockbuster films of our lifetime, such movies as Raiders of the Lost Ark, Back to the Future, and Jurassic World. But this Emmy season, he's directed a great documentary homage to one of the best-selling bands of all time, HBO's The Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? Frank Marshall is here with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. So I know music has always been in your family, but what was it specifically about the Bee Gees that you wanted that you wanted to focus on them in a documentary? Did you have questions? Were there some questions unanswered about them and about their legacy? No, I, <clears throat> I've always loved the Bee Gees music, um, and when I was first. Uh, well, let's let's put it this way. I always loved the Bee Gees music, but I was always interested in the family dynamic because I come from a musical family, and I was always interested in what made them tick. Um, but until I started really, you know, examining their their career and their journey, I, I had no idea what an incredible story it was. Um, you know, they transcended five decades somehow. They stayed together over these five decades and, and kept reinventing themselves. And so I was really interested in, in um, you know, how that all came about. I mean, people really think of them as kind of lightweights. And what I discovered is they're really heavyweights. Absolutely. And that's completely underscored in the documentary. And that's what's so awesome about it is how they deserve, given their harmony, to be mentioned in the same sentence as the Beatles, especially coming out of that 50s to 60s era of the British invasion. And um, it's funny, you know, sometimes in headlines and things that you pick up, you think, oh, they're an Australian band. Yes, they were from Australia, but they, they were really part of this British invasion. Yeah, and, and that was kind of made the story complicated too, Anthony, is that they're, we all think of them as coming from Australia, but they're really British. Yeah. And they, they immigrated to Australia. They had their childhood there. That's where they really developed this dream to become a, a, a pop band. And their parents supported them. And when they recognized what was happening with the Beatles, they said, we have to go back to England to become part of the, the British invasion and the British wave of music. And they almost got there too late because, you know, groups were sort of on the outs. And then this, you know, as things happen in life, 
this incredible uh, connection with Robert Stigwood happened uh, just by accident. What was it as a family? Because sometimes we've seen in the successes of family musicians, and I'm thinking the Beach Boys and Murray Wilson, we've seen the toxic side, of, or at least we've heard of it. You know, what was it that, you know, yes, these guys, they would, you know, as they had success, they would fall out. But early on, what kept them together? Was it, was it a, just the father's keen sense of giving and caring in a way that maybe Murray was not? <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't want to compare them, but I can tell you what I discovered was they had a really warm, nurturing childhood. And I think their father and their mother, Hugh and Barbara, I think are their names, um, really supported them and, and you know, um, nurtured that closeness that they had as a family. And um, they discovered, you know, that they could do this, that they just could sing together. And Barry said to me, you know, uh, Robin and I would just sing and Morris would drop in the third part harmony sort of automatically. And I said, well, how does that happen? He said, I don't know. He just did it. So they had this unique sound. They also, as I say, they had this really close family unit and they moved together. They all moved back to England um, their father was their manager at first, but what I also found interesting, we, we see a lot of father-mother figures in, in bands and individual artists' life that become smothering, but, but Hugh let them blossom and let Robert Stigwood take them and really make them into what they became. So uh, I, I think it was really that family dynamic uh, that kept them going. And then, as you know, they all moved to Miami. Yeah, yeah. The, the whole family. <laughs> so how did this whole project begin for you? Did you ever know Barry at any point in time or any of them? Did, just how did it, you, you produce stocks, but you're, you're also a director of them. Yes. Um, but how did this all come together? Well, this all came together one afternoon in, at Capitol Records. Um, my dad was a producer, guitarist, uh, session player, um, arranger at Capitol Records back in the 60s. And I used to go with him to Capitol Records and sit on the floor and hear all these amazing musicians and, and singers and, and people record. And I was invited by Steve Barnett, who was the CEO of Capitol Records about five years ago to come visit the new building, which had been renovated and put back to the way it was in its heyday. And so we were sitting around talking about where Capitol Records was going to go. And we were talking about how, and this is five years ago, we were talking about how documentaries were sort of putting groups back on the map and and he saw it as a way to kind of reinvig reinvigorate groups' uh, catalogs. And he said, you know, I just purchased the Bee Gees. And I said, well, I love the Bee Gees. What about them? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, Barry Gibb is coming out here in a couple of weeks because the Grammys 
were doing a, a tribute show to the Bee Gees. And he said, let's get together and, and you know, see if maybe that's interesting to uh, Barry and what he thinks. And sure enough, um, about a month later, there I was back in Steve's office, which is fabulous, is right at the top of, of uh, the Capitol Tower. And um, we kind of hit it off. Uh, I think mainly because we shared that family thing with, with having a, a family in music. I was there at Capitol Records. He was now at Capitol Records. Uh, we both had younger brothers. I had a band with my brothers back in the 60s for about 10 minutes. Uh, the so Mersh I kind of, <laughs> the Mersh brothers, right? The Mersh brothers, yeah. <laughs> so I kind of understood uh, how uh, complicated that dynamic could be. And so it, it took about a year of going back and forth to Miami and talking about it. And he agreed to go forward with it. And uh, I have to thank uh, Steve for that. How did you and Mark Monroe late, like, did you have beat, did you have plot points that you wanted to lay down in the dock? For example, obviously you're going into a Bee Gees dock. You'll want to know how Saturday Night Fever, how, how the magic of that came together. I mean, that, in addition to being the second highest uh, selling um, soundtrack of all time, the 40, 40 million copies, it's an anomaly. You you never, you know. I don't even know if Tron with uh, the Tron soundtrack that that was the big one. You 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 rarely hear of soundtracks where it's strictly driven by uh, a singular pop artist voice. Right. But but what questions did you guys have? Well, first of all, let me let me tell you how Mark Monroe got involved. Um, okay. So the you know the way you look at these. Um, documentaries and I love documentaries because you never know what direction they're going in. They're, they're so different than my day job where, you know, where I have a script and I know every moment what we're shooting and where we're going. Um, when, when Barry agreed to do the doc, it was just me. And so I thought, well, what kind of support team and what producer would I like to work with? And I looked at the, the docs that I had, had really, um, liked up at that point and one was the Beatles and that was Nigel Sinclair and Jeannie uh, Esta, uh, Jeannie Festa and Mark Monroe and Nigel's company Whitehorse Pictures uh, and I figured look if you can if you can find footage that hasn't been seen of the Beatles then these are the people for me and uh, so I brought Nigel and Jeannie and Mark onto the project. So I started working with Mark as the writer and we were, you know, it's just this amazing journey that they had over these different decades where, um, you know, they were always adapting. They never had a category and they would somehow fit into the different eras. So they had this, this longevity where a lot of bands came and went. And one of those periods was the Saturday night fever period. But again, when we started looking into it, it was kind of a coincidence and it all be was because of Robert Stigwood. So when I started talking to Barry about Saturday night fever, which is obviously the thing I at that point had remembered most about them was they had a hit soundtrack album from a movie. So, 
soundtracks from movies for me meant there was a composer and they worked with the director and the story and everything. So I said, so Barry, you know, when you read the script, you know, what was it that, that really, you know, inspired you to write these songs? And he said, no, 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 no. <laughs> You've got it all wrong. Robert Stigwood called us and we were in France in the Chateau mm -hmm. where Elton John had made his famous album. And he said, you know, I, I'm doing a movie and I need some songs and I'm going to send you the script. So Robert Stigwood sent them the script, but they never read the script, <laughs> which was, <laughs> which was, <laughs> which it was happened more often. It was a little disheartening <laughs> to me. Say what? You didn't read the script? No, we didn't read the script. We actually were doing an album and we had like five uh, demos in a drawer and we laid them down and they were five songs and we sent them off to, uh, to Robert Stigwood. And um, I, it's in the movie, that cassette. And those five songs on there are just unbelievable and they fit perfectly into the movie. The, um, other, th the other thing that was amazing, that was great was how Stigwood that how the soundtrack led the film distribution. Like basically they saturated the markets where the soundtrack was going and then followed that up with the, with the film release. That's amazing. I don't know if that's ever even been done before. Yeah, Robert Sigwood was a very smart fellow and he knew marketing before there was marketing. And he knew that if he could get people to listen to the song that they might go to the movie. So he wrote that into the deal is in every market that the movie became number one, they had a certain amount of theaters that Paramount had to guarantee to give them. And so it was sort of the start of, of what we see today, but, but it was just amazing that, um, you know, and of course, then there's the, the serendipity of it all with the, um, with the creation of staying alive and the drum loop. So there were all these amazing things that happened on that particular uh, soundtrack. Did you get any sense, you know, there's the moment in the dock when it was like, they just sent their tape in, <laughs> they sent it over with staying alive, how deep is your love, night fever. It was like, was, did you, was there ever any blood, sweat and tears with these guys or they just did what they did? Once they, they, once they, they, um, they uh, came up with that high falsetto in their new sound. Was it just, they just did what they did in the studio? Yeah, and that, you know, Bill Oakes, who was working for, for Robert Sigwood said, you know, it was just, we got these, this tape with these five songs, it was unbelievable. And, and then when I talked to Barry about it, yeah, they were just working on those songs. And I, I think one of the keys to them is how flexible and adaptable they were. And, you know, there's that saying, uh, what is it? Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Mm -hmm. well, that's what happened with Staying Alive. And that's what happened with the falsetto uh, on uh, Nights on Broadway, that, that they found these new things that just, um, th th that people then responded to. And, uh, you know, they went with it. So they were, you know, they, they had that adaptability uh, 
but they knew when they had something good, they went with it. And uh, I, they were very collaborative uh, with each other. And they listened to Robert Stigwood and they listened to their producers um, along the way. And I think that's what made them so special. David, Made for Love on HBO Max. Have you seen this comedy series yet? It's starring Kristen Milioti. You know, she's always been great in all these romantic comedies. This one, she turns it upside down. She's great. She plays this wife, Hazel Green. She's a trophy wife of this Elon Musk-like tech billionaire whose name is Byron Gogol. And he's put a chip in her head. And it's called the love chip. And he wants to monitor all of her feelings and emotions and everything. She's trapped in his like virtual house and she runs, she flees the guy and she runs to the father played by Ray Romano, who she's never seen in the last 10 years. Essentially, he has a, um, let's say synthetic partner, if you will. It's a hysterically funny show. It's on HBO Max and it's up this Emmy season uh, for all categories, in particular outstanding comedy series. One of the things that the doc clearly answers for someone such as myself is their immediate rise and fall. As a kid growing up in the 80s, from elementary to high school, I remember going into the department store, always seeing, you know, I'd go to the soundtrack section, I would always see Saturday Night Fever, and I would always see the faces of the Bee Gees. But what was really interesting was during the 80s, listening to the top 40, they didn't they didn't, um, and I'm talking like mid '80s, like the Michael, ja you know, when Michael Jackson was was at his um, his zenith. I, I really didn't hear much from the Bee Gees. Again, you answer that in the doc how they went on to collaborate with Barbara Streisand, but tell me about their rise and fall. That was really shocking. All of a sudden, disco was dead, and in a really massive way. And I love how. It gets pegged to the Chicago DJ. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Was that was that a discovery for you? Oh, that was a real discovery for me. I mean, I kind of remembered that that you know they fell out of favor for a while, but I didn't really know why. Um, and and <laughs> you know, Barry kind of got a little bit grumpy when I mentioned them as you know playing disco, and he. He said, we didn't play disco. We played different kinds of music. You know, we weren't just, don't label us as disco. We had a variety of musical styles and sounds, but they got tagged as the leaders of the disco, I guess, genre because of Saturday Night Fever. So when this backlash hit, which was really a cultural thing, not a musical thing, it was a cultural thing. Um, they were just the, the victims of it. And yeah. that dynamic uh, changed overnight. They, you know, th they were huge stars as, you know, one of my favorite parts of the doc is when we cut back and forth between them in Oakland to yes. thousands of adoring fans and mm -hmm. the, the disco sucks thing going on <laughs> in Chicago. Uh, so, you know, everything they had dreamed of suddenly became, you know, a nightmare. Yeah. And, you know, they they then couldn't even get their songs played on the radio. It was kind of incredible. 
Was it hard um, for Barry to talk about Andy? Was that, was that a part where it was just, that was, I'm, I'm assuming, it, it, was that a challenge in the doc, putting, putting covering, covering Andy, given his tragedy? Well, one of the, the early tragedies. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think the whole thing was kind of bittersweet for Barry, you know, and he was always very humble and gracious and, and very reflect, reflective of his life. But the bottom line is he really misses his brothers, all of them, all three of them. Great. You end the doc on such a great line. You know, I'd rather so, have no number one hits and have them all alive again. It's yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, thanks. Thanks. You know, I was, that, that was really, uh, what a moment that was in the interview. And, you know, what I really wanted to do was celebrate their legacy and celebrate the brothers and all they gave to us on, on a musical level. Um, so hopefully that artistry and resilience and that legacy uh, will stand forever. And, and that's what Barry says. It's all about the music. I want everybody to remember the music. Oh, remember it, we do. The, the, um, let me go back to early on in your career. You, you cut your teeth working with Peter Bogdanovich. Yeah. Um, what were some lessons you learned from him that continue with you today as a producer? Um, well, I, I would say treat everyone as your family. You know, we're all in this together uh, on this movie where we're, you know, we're working 24 seven to, to bring uh, the director's vision to the screen, but the, you can do it in a nice way. You can, you, it doesn't have to be a nightmare. We work hard, we work together. Uh, he really taught me about collaboration and, and, working together because um, I think that's really important. Also, um, you know, I'd say that uh, he taught me never to give up. He was always saying, you know, okay, well, if we can't get that, how can we get this and have it work for the story? So he, he always encouraged me to never give up. And uh, that's one of the things that I I cherish today. I mean, Peter really was one of my great mentors, as was Polly Platt. Um, the two of them together gave me my first chance um, on movies, and they supported me. I, we did seven or eight movies together in a row there, and I learned so much from both of them uh, about um, about working with the creative side. I mean, as a producer. I think my reputation is that I work with the director and the writer and, and the people on the movie rather than being that person who always says no. I always try and find a way to say yes. Can you talk about, because you've been, you and Kathleen have been behind, you know, huge, you know, classic uh, successful films such as Indiana Jones and uh, a number of Spielberg films. What is the trick to balancing the dialogue between the production and the studio. How, can you talk about that? The studio always has their wants, not necessarily what the filmmaking team is seeing. There's always a compromise, but is there a, 
is there a trick to that? Is there a way to convince the, can you, can you share with us a time when the studio thought no, and we thought yes, and we convinced them, come see it our way, and they did, and you, <laughs> <laughs> Terry Gilliam has a number of these where he told Universal, hey, I was right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I never say I was right. Yeah, <laughs> you got to do another picture with it. But it's really you, you have to be a diplomat, I think. And, and maybe it comes from maybe that's the reason I majored in political science at UCLA <laughs> is that I should have gone into foreign relations or something. But you're you're you need to listen to both sides, you know, and I do feel that we owe a responsibility to the studio because it's their money. You know, if we were making the movie with our own money, then it'd be one thing. But it, it is their their it is their money, and we. So I I try and bring whatever we want beyond what's in the budget to the studio in a way that it makes sense for the movie. That we're going to have a better movie. It's going to make more money if we were able to do this. Um, and it's really about uh, being able to uh, straddle that middle ground and, and continue to get the vision of the director, uh, he or she up on the screen, but finding out a way, you know, when things come up and they do all the time that you don't expect, um, you either have to find a way to move the money around within the budget, which I've become very good at, at finding things, look, I'll, I can get you this if you'll give up this. That's that's the start with the director. And then we get to a point where we take it to the studio and hopefully we can we can show them that it, it's gonna really be beneficial to the telling of the story. What's your take on the current state of Hollywood, this battle between streaming and the big screen? Is it... I mean, more now more than ever, a producer needs to be agnostic in regards to where their content will go. Um, I mean, what's your take? I, I mean, I'm not trying to put my philosophy on you. I don't think the big screen is dead at all. No, I, I agree. Everybody's always going to want to go to movies. Yeah. It's a, it's a social experience. You want to go, you, you want to go somewhere, you want to see it in its beauty and in the sound is fantastic. And you wanna be there with a thousand people laughing and screaming and crying and it's a group experience. So I think the movies and the movie theaters are always going to be here. But I'm also a storyteller and there are different ways to now tell our stories. So a lot of people get to see them, not necessarily in a movie theater, but they get to see them. So I'm about telling those stories and finding a way to have them seen. I mean, I, I'm. we don't make our stories for just us. We make them for the audience. And right now, as we know, the audience has changed. Um, you know, I, I think it was sped up by the pandemic um, because, you know, I, Netflix and Amazon are here to stay, you know, so and Disney Plus and Peacock Plus and <laughs> whatever the pluses are all around town but I want to tell stories. So, you know, I just think it's another outlet. Do you think it's more the uh, older adult demo, like genres that, that 
kind of have the harder time, that harder fine line between does it go to streaming, does it go to big screen? Yeah, I think it's evolving. Um, you know, the middle, the movies, the mid-budget movies, the more adult movies, um, yes, they're probably going to find a place uh, on streamers rather than in the movie theaters. But I still think there's room. I mean, I'd like to see my doc on a big screen. I mean, that, oh, that'd that's, be amazing. That's the only regret I have is right now. I mean, we were accepted. It's the first time I've been accepted at the Telluride Film Festival. And we we're going to have this gigantic screening in Town Park with everybody dancing and singing and everything. And there you go. I didn't get to have that. But, you know, uh, maybe a lot more people saw it on HBO than, you know, so I don't know. But I want that experience on the movie screen. Are you going, I see that you're working on McCartney 321. Yeah. Can you tell us, can you tell us more about that? Are you, are you directing? Or are you just producing? I'm one of the producers. And is it, is it just like access to McCartney day in the life? He's, he's great. Yeah. It's a six part series on Hulu, which will debut in July. Oh, and wow. And Rick Rubin was able to, for the first time, get the original master tapes out of Abbey Road. And he and Paul have many hours of discussions about how all that music came about. It's pretty amazing. Wow, wow. Um, the other fascinating thing about Paul is that he owns, like a big part of the way he makes money uh, is he owns the, the, the catalog, a big music, like he doesn't own the Beatles songs, but he owns this other major catalog, which has like the musical Annie and a number of other, mm. another of uh, song rights in it. Um, yeah, he's a clever fellow too. <laughs> yeah. Indiana Jones, anything you could tell us is anything plot wise, is it still I, a father and son story? I can't tell you anything. Understood. Otherwise, I'd be killed. <laughs> um, my last question is, um, can, out of the classics that you've produced, can, which one is more, I, I know that there, I've, I've always heard about, re, you know, like there's an arachnophobia reboot that's going on. I think there's a Gremlin series. But do you think we'll ever see another rendition of Back to the Future, Goonies, or Who Framed Roger Rabbit, those, those three? Uh, well, two of them were directed by my great friend, Bob Zemeckis, who we just celebrated his 70th birthday last weekend. And uh, you're not going to see another Roger, and you're not going to see another Back to the Future. Wow, I wow. promise you. Um, wow. The Goonies, I know that, uh, that Dick Donner would, would love to have a Goonies. Again, it's, you know, it's, a, it's about finding the story. And it's hard to duplicate those, those, you know, everything comes together for a reason at the right time. And it's magic. And I, it'd be hard to duplicate uh, those three. Versus something like Jurassic World, where there was a hook. There was a big yeah. hook. Tell, tell us about that. And I believe it was with Colin. It, it, it started. Yes, yes. There was you know, something that made everyone in the room go, yes, that's it. That's what's going to make it reborn. 
Right, right. And that was really uh, in Jurassic World. That was Colin Trevorrow coming in and saying to Stephen and I, hey, I've got an idea here uh, on, you know, what if the park actually somebody came in, you know, like they're doing with lots of things today and and spent the money to build the park right. And we have all these theme parks, you know, like at Universal and Disneyland and all those other places. You know, what if, what if that was the idea and people could actually experience dinosaurs like we we go to, you know, City Walk or or somewhere up there. And and we really like that idea. The um before we go, is were there un, any unanswered questions for you coming away from the Bee Gees that maybe there's a part two to this documentary? Um, no, I, I, I think I pretty much, you know, answered the questions that, that I had of Barry. Um, the big one for me was, you know, where do these, where do these songs come from? You know, I always figured that you spent a lot of time agonizing over lyrics and anything. And I think Chris Martin said it best in the doc. He said, you know, there's kind of an, a magic running things and that the songs that the songwriters receive these songs. They don't really write them. It's like Barry going over the bridge in, in Miami and clickety, 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 jive talking. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, my, my, my other good friend, Jimmy Buffett told me that he, he wrote Margaritaville in hung over in an airport in about 10 minutes. I said, don't tell people that. You know, we want to believe that you spent a lot of time agonizing over the lyrics and working this out. You know, you can't tell people you wrote these songs in 10, 20 minutes. But Barry said the same thing and they just come and then they run with them. That's that's amazing. And the, frankly, I think those are those are fascinating stories. I think I'm not correct. I've always heard that Michael Jackson wrote Billie Jean while driving down Van Nuys Boulevard, I think. I That's think. highly possible. I believe that story. Yeah, yeah. On his way to Bob's Big Boy. <laughs> Frank Marshall, director of the Bee Gees, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? It premiered on HBO. You can watch it on HBO Max. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. Nice to see you, Anthony. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. 